Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In a public speech at Alexandria tonight, President Nasser announced that Egypt would build the Aswan Dam from her own resources. Funds would be obtained from operation of Suez Canal. Law nationalising Suez Canal and expropriating Canal Company was approved by Cabinet this morning. Text, as read out by Nasser, follows. Police had just been posted around Canal Company's Cairo office. British Ambassador to Egypt, Humphrey Trevelyan, reports on Nasser's provocative nationalisation of the Suez Canal Company. Telegram received in London at 9.45pm on the 26th of July, 1956. I expected that most of us have seen, sometimes with amusement and sometimes with anger, reports and orders obviously worded with an eye to the future historian, or as we like to call them, for the record. 
The wording of signals and orders for the record is a very fine art and well calculated to fox the historian. Lord Tedder, writing in his book With Prejudice in 1966. In England in the late 1950s and early 60s, the word was a political taunt of considerable force and pugnancy. One only had to shout Suez at a conservative orator to see his features decompose with dismay. A classic Tory education, Eton, Munich and Suez, was how one scornful writer sketched the political career of a former Prime Minister. Like Munich, indeed, Suez had become an indelible metaphor for fiasco, dishonour and humiliation. Christopher Hitchens, writing in 1986. On Sunday the 20th of February, 1938, Anthony Eden resigned as Foreign Secretary of Great Britain. It had been a difficult last few months. The troubling international situation was coupled with Eden's differences with his colleagues. Appeasement, Eden believed, was not working as a policy. Not so, believed Neville Chamberlain. That autumn, Chamberlain would acquire peace in our time, while Eden drew closer to his friend and ally in the Conservative camp, Winston Churchill. On the day that Churchill was made Prime Minister, the 10th of May 1940, Eden was present. Almost exactly 15 years to that date later, in March 1955, Anthony Eden took the reins from Churchill and assumed the Premiership of Britain. It was a position which many people and politicians believed had been a long time coming. One individual, later a historian and politician, wrote on Eden in the 1970s that Antony was the golden boy, slim, handsome and charming. My generation looked upon him as typifying the generation who had survived the war to become the champion and defender of our pathetic beliefs in what proved to be those ephemeral Wilsonian shibboleths of a war to end wars and let us make the world safe for democracy. Though he did not succeed, we knew it was no fault of his and he retained our confidence. Antony, the arch-anti-appeaser, the man of integrity, the honourable leader, would lead the Conservative Party now at a time of uncertainty, as the Cold War was intensifying, but as conflict seemed nonetheless distant. This faith in Antony Eden was to prove tragically misplaced. Through no fault of his own, he had been saddled with a crushing burden, wrote the historian Norman Rose, adding that, Almost before his career had properly begun, he had acquired a reputation as a man of strict principles, as a politician who would not be deflected from the path of moral virtue by vulgar considerations of personal preferment. In actual fact, Eden was to shatter these assumptions about his character, and he was to do so in such a way and on such a stage as to shatter at the same time the image of Britain in a post-war world. For it was Eden's destiny to play an integral role in the Suez Crisis. For a variety of reasons, some ideological, some practical and some personal, Anthony Eden was to make this Suez Crisis possible. It was Eden who developed a seething hatred of all things President Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt. It was Eden who obsessed over losing the Suez Canal or any kind of advantage to a former colonial vassal. It was Eden who gave his blessing to collusion with France and Israel, thereby catapulting British foreign policy into a new crisis which it had not known since 1940. It was Eden who, after approving a policy which was designed to trick the world and bring Britain the triumph he felt that she needed, proceeded to lie his head off about every single aspect of it for the rest of his life. 
It was Eden who tampered with evidence, attempted to destroy evidence, and ignored the sound counsel of men who knew better at every turn from every department. This might seem harsh, but as you'll discover, it's not exactly unfair. The Suez Crisis, quite simply, is a story we cannot tell without also telling the story of Anthony Eden, and it is, for this reason above all, that our examination of the Suez Crisis will be rooted firmly in the perspective of the British. This gives us a sound position from which to examine the rest of the event that took place over October and November 1956, but it also ensures that we do not miss the key ingredients which Anthony Eden, Britain's Prime Minister from March 1955 till January 1957, brought to them. Without Eden, there would have been no crisis. Of that, I am quite certain. After having written more than 20 episodes, trawled through the source material, the articles, and extensive records on the House of Commons debates. If the Suez Crisis is a story you've never heard before, then my approach will not strike you as particularly innovative. To those that know the Suez Crisis, indeed, the person of Eden remains critical to understanding why matters proceeded as they did. Yet at the same time, we would be remiss if we failed to look at the desperate French government, which was fast losing ground in Algeria, and which saw disaster and pressures everywhere. We would also be remiss if we neglected to mention Israel, barely 10 years old by the time the Suez Crisis happened. The threats which Israel faced compelled its government to seek allies, and they found them and plentiful arms deals in the French. These two polities were keen to answer the threats to their existence. To both Paris and Tel Aviv, Egypt appeared to be the primary concern. It was Egypt's Colonel Nasser who had consistently threatened Israel with destruction. It was Nasser who advocated a pan-Arabism solution to the tangled Middle East, as a way of deliberately excluding Israel from making friends. It was Nasser who stuck his nose into any conflict with a colonial bent to it, such as the one taking place in Algeria between the French government and Algerian rebels. Nasser's determination also to aid French colonies Tunis and Morocco in their struggle for independence equated to painfully melting the sensitive post-war French national consciousness with a burning acid. Nasser was brutal, he was ambitious, he was effective, he was strong and he was popular. Then in July 1956, Nasser took the greatest leap of all and forcibly nationalised the Suez Canal Company. The Suez Canal Company was the multinational corporation charged with controlling, policing and maintaining the critical Suez waterway. The canal was relatively new in its physical form, but as an idea, the Suez Canal was ancient. Many civilizations had attempted to transform the short portion of land between the Mediterranean and Red Sea into an artificial passageway. Along this artery, travel, trade and defence became profoundly cheaper, better and more active. It would remove the need to travel all the way around Africa in order to reach the prosperous Far East. By 1869, with French ingenuity and money, this ancient dream was made a modern reality, but it quickly turned into a nightmare for those that attempted to make the dream work. The canal did not take off initially as had been hoped. It remained too narrow and in need of constant repair and policing. The native Egyptian ruler bankrupted himself in his efforts to support its construction, and with those loan sharks chasing him down, he needed to sell his shares in the Suez Canal Company. 
His 40% stake in this company was valuable indeed because it would give the purchaser a sizable stake in how the company charged with administrating the canal and receiving its profits operated. It was to the Egyptian Khedive's immense surprise then that the previously disinterested British appeared on the scene, ready to purchase his stake and with interest. Benjamin Disraeli, thanks to the help of his Rothschild friends, had raised a gargantuan sum, and with an impressed Queen Victoria looking on, just like that, Britain acquired a major stake in this brave new technological and engineering marvel. There was much to be done, but here in 1875, a love affair of immense proportions was born. Within less than a decade, Britain had transformed Egypt into its protectorate, and the canal's importance was recast from a French misadventure in British newspapers into the key to the imperial crown jewel of India. To lose Suez was to lose India, was to lose the empire. Through two world wars, the Suez Canal stood firm, its old 19th century company still holding out against the kind of nationalisations seen in other developing states. Egypt, thanks to British meddling, was ruled by the docile King Farouk, and this king wasn't about to jeopardise the good thing he had going by threatening the British interest of the canal company. According to the terms of an 1888 convention on the canal, King Farouk would have been within his rights to have nationalised the canal company, but he would never dream of such an act. The British kept him in a state of perpetual luxury, and he remained far from the sight and hearts of his beleaguered Egyptian subjects. So long as this relationship continued, a bribed King Farouk could be expected to keep well away from the canal, and to permit the lucrative British investment in the canal to be returned with so much interest. Not even the loss of India diminished the importance of the canal. Instead, it seemed to reinforce its importance, because without the canal, it seemed possible that the remainder of the empire and the commonwealth would also crumble, unsupported, disconnected and unsupplied, into the abyss. Then, in July 1952, King Farouk was ousted in a coup led by the Egyptian army. Foremost in this coup was the dashing young colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser. We said earlier that the story of the Suez Crisis is one which cannot be told without talking about Antony Eden, but it's also one which cannot be told without delving into the shock to the British system which the rise of Colonel Nasser represented. Perhaps not since Gandhi had a figure in Britain's imperial sphere so challenged and confounded British sensibilities. Here was a man who knew of Egypt's importance to Britain, and who understood very well the advantages his country possessed in the grand scheme of world interest. He could not be bribed, well, not by Britain anyway, and he could not be persuaded to take any course other than that of resistance and the pursuit of national pan-Arab interests. Just as this dynamic new leader was accumulating power in Egypt, Antony Eden was finally getting his chance to come into his own in Britain. It cannot be considered a coincidence that the Suez Crisis loomed only 18 months after Antony Eden came to power. For this reason, Antony Eden's career deserves analysis in the context of the Suez Crisis, and this is a task we will absolutely tackle. Don't you worry, this journey will be pretty darn fascinating. Important as it is to examine Eden, we'll also examine how British political debate at home proceeded over October and November, and take our cue from the debates taking place in the House of Commons, as we build you guys a picture of how British statesmen at home reacted to what was happening abroad. 
This perspective grants us the opportunity to see Eden and his government as the opposition would have seen them. If Eden comes off badly overall, then it is this focus on the domestic that really puts the nail in his career. But of course, this is when diplomacy fails, and domestic politics, while important for placing us in context, is not what we're all about here. The British relationship with France and how a new entente was developed into the Severus Protocol requires examination, as does Britain's relationship with the Commonwealth states and how each state pursued its own policy and held its own interests close at heart. In a time where loyalty to the mother country still counted for something, examining these trends has been fascinating. Another fascinating line of query was Britain's relationship with the United Nations and how British delegates managed to frustrate that institution's genuine efforts to make peace. This made the British unpopular with the Americans, and the Eisenhower administration, whose leader was on the verge of another election at the time, will be the lens through which we view American foreign policy, controlled by the eminently capable Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. British intransigence and deception made its representatives few friends in the United Nations or in Washington. But surprisingly, the European states which had moved closer to it in the last few years did support Eden's quest to take back Suez, as we'll see. Startled by Soviet aggression in Hungary, the European states closed ranks just at the time when Britain needed their support most. This relationship between Britain and the Western European Union, and the Western European Union's relationship with both the United States and United Nations, are aspects of the Suez story which I can't wait to bring to you guys. Of course, we must also spend some time bringing our analysis from the previous section of 1956 full circle. The Soviet angle in the Suez crisis, and the role which Soviet foreign policymakers played in beefing up Egypt at Britain's expense, will have to be examined. One of the most fascinating and terrible things about 1956 was of course the fact that crises like Suez and Hungary occurred so close together, preventing the West from formulating any close-knit response. The implications of this for the West, and whether Britain could be blamed for the lack of a Western rescue package for Hungary, will also be debated as we proceed. As you can see from this to-do list, we've got a lot to cover, but I hope you guys will enjoy the ride, and I can assure you after researching these last 20 episodes, I certainly have. A final point about some nitty gritty details. The introduction song, much like the song for part 1, has to be topical as a rule, but it also has to be catchy. If you've only just managed to get gloomy Sunday out of your head, then congratulations, but our theme here is Lay Down Your Arms by Anne Shelton. And this song was in the number one spot, just as British soldiers and ships were converging on Suez. It was considered somewhat controversial, enough for the always interfering Eden to consider censoring the song. But in the end, the concern for the well-being of their soldiers being instructed to lay down their arms would lapse. As far as sources go, I should point you guys to the bibliography for the full whack of source material we'll be drawing on. The list is quite extensive, and it is enough to make any budding history reference nerd blush. I spent a good while tracking down the best source material possible, so do check out the bibliography for further reading, if that's your thing. 
As always, it is free to download the bibliography from our website, wdfpodcast.com. Within this series, we also use a great deal of primary sources, thanks in large part to the trove of such material being available online, be it in Hansard's digitised collection of parliamentary debates, or the partnership between Yale and the United Nations to record interviews held with some of the people who served their countries during the crisis. This gives me the opportunity to engage with material on a scale I haven't really done before in this podcast, which of course is always exciting. I can't wait to bring you the insights and perspectives which these invaluable sources bring. Something which makes this project all the more interesting is the fact that it was only within the last 30 years that these materials became available. Before 1986, there was officially a blanket ban on the release of sources to the public, as the secrets of what really went down in Suez remained state secrets. The opening of the floodgates in 1987 led to an explosion in accounts of Suez, but as we'll see even before this material was released, individuals who had served during the crisis and historians who attempted to read between the lines all released their own accounts of what happened, with fascinating degrees of accuracy, foresight and truth therein. This series would not have been possible without the work of the historians, and as ever I am standing very much on the shoulders of giants, so a huge thanks to them and their hard work. And that's it, history friends. If you would like to feast your ears upon what we have in store for you, make sure to listen to episodes 2.1 and 2.2 of part 2 of 1956, which are coming up pretty darn soon. In fact, part 1 should be out right now. For those patrons listening now, though, a huge thanks to you, and I can't wait to bring you this incredible story and to talk about it with you. You can find me, as always, on Twitter, at WDF Podcast, and on Facebook in the group and the page. Why not say hello and chat with yours truly about what went down? 1956 as a series has been a brave step in a new direction, that of making history as accessible as possible to people, and of getting Wendell Plumacy Fells' name out there as far as possible in the process. In case it wasn't obvious, I love history and podcasting and bringing both to history fanatics in as delectable a bundle as I can. So I hope that 1956 is something you will enjoy. To those of you that have taken the Patreon plunge, I cannot thank you enough for your support. To those of you that have yet to take that plunge, all I can say is I hope you will consider it, purely because we have some really exciting works to come in the When Diplomacy Fails banner. We've got a lot going on as it is. We've got the Korean War going on up till November, and then we've got the Versailles Anniversary Project running from November to July, I think it is. And then the Thirty Years' War is starting that September. And in the meantime, I'll be uprooting myself and going to Cambridge. But just in case you needed some more history or some more Zach Twomley in your life right now, and if you can't get enough of my voice, or maybe you just want to throw your money at me in the hopes that I'll go away, then hey, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. That again, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, as always, link in the description. Help me to make some beautiful historical music, courtesy of your generosity. I don't want to waste any more of your time, so if you have stuck around all the way to the end, woohoo, thanks, you guys are great. And I hope you guys will join me for the first episode of 1956 Part 2. My name is Zach, thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.